Well, there are some weeks when I exposit relatively straightforward portions of Scripture. At least the rules of expositional preaching are easily applied in those occasions. Now, I must confess, this week is not one of them. Ruth chapter 3 is a chapter that no pastor would preach on if it was not in the regular course of our exposition. I've never thought to myself, oh, if I could just preach Ruth 3 today, then everything would be wonderful. And I would just love to explain to the church what it means for one woman to tell another woman to spy on a man, and then in the middle of the night to quietly sneak up to him, and then for her to remove the blanket at the edge of his feet, uncover his feet, and then just to lay down there for a while and see what happens. I mean, perhaps in your small groups this week, as you read the text, you were thinking, what's going on here? Now, what's going on in this passage? And maybe you were thinking to yourself, well, I can't wait for Friday morning. How is Pastor Dave going to explain this one? What is he going to say about this girl who uncovers this guy's feet? Well, it's in the Bible, and the time is here. And by God's grace, I do have a few things to say. This is really an incredible story, isn't it? It's a story filled with drama and suspense. It's filled with beauty. It's filled with God's goodness, God's sovereignty, and God's grace. It almost feels like we should be gathered in the desert late at night, and we should all be sitting around the campfire. It's a suspenseful, wonderful story. But before we jump in, let me give us a recap of where we've been in the first two chapters of the book of Ruth. We saw in chapter 1, it left us with the bitter providence of God in the life of Naomi. Her family had left Bethlehem and in disobedience, they went to the land of Moab in search for food. And we see Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he dies, and then her two sons, Malon and Kilion, they both die. And then on the way back to Bethlehem to get food, one of her two daughters-in-law goes back, leaves her. We see that Naomi's clearly hopeless. She thinks that, yeah, God is sovereign. He uh, orchestrates everything, and yet he's, he's not real good. He's not very kind. Well, that's Naomi at the end of chapter 1. But we did see some seeds of hope, didn't we? The famine had ended in Bethlehem. She arrived just in time for the barley harvest. Not only that, she wasn't alone. Ruth, her daughter-in-law, was, was there with her. She was clinging to her. She left her family, her home, her culture, left her idol. She left everything to come with Naomi, to support Naomi, to care for Naomi. And yet, remember, Naomi was blind, right? She couldn't see all that God was doing in her life. Couldn't see all the goodness. She had become bitter toward God. But we see even more hope for Naomi in chapter 2. In God's kind providence, Ruth is brought to the field of Boaz. And she labors for food. Boaz showers compassion and kindness for her. He feeds her and Naomi. He provides protection for her. I mean, Ruth and Naomi have enough food to feed an army. And it's at this point that the mercy of God begins breaking through bright enough even for Naomi to begin to see it. Perhaps she even has a little smile on her face at this point. But now in chapter 3, where we begin today, the harvest is coming to an end. It, in fact, it has ended. Gleaning was over, and soon food 
would be running out. And so where will they go? What will Ruth and Naomi eat? What does the future hold? And you begin in the first verses of chapter 3, you sense the urgency of the moment. In the scene, it transitions from the broad daylight of the barley field over to the dead of night on the threshing floor. And we're given a front row seat to witness an ancient custom in an intimate setting on the backdrop of a tense situation as the livelihood of two widows is at stake. The book will hit its climax in a few verses and we'll see the incredible response of initiative of the three main characters. They'll exhibit what John Piper calls a strategic righteousness. What would Naomi do when the food runs out? Her opportunity to care for her daughter-in-law is almost over. What will she do? What about Ruth? What is she going to do when she's confronted with a high-risk assignment that could dictate the future for her and Naomi? And how about Boaz? How will he react when he's faced with a request that if answered in the affirmative will change everything? Well, as we reflect on this passage of Scripture and we look at these three characters, we also have to ask ourselves, what about me? How will I react when faced with life-altering situations? Well, I want to look at each of these people in turn while keeping in mind the main point of the passage. So if you're taking notes, let me give you the overarching point of the passage, and then we'll look in turn at Naomi, at Ruth, at Boaz, and then at you. So here's the main point. God's sovereign goodness leads his people to godly risk for his glory. God's sovereign goodness leads his people to godly risk for his glory. See, the three individuals in our story, they don't just let go and let God. These people believe that God is sovereign and they walk by faith. We see energetic human action in the context of divine sovereignty. So first, let's take a look at Naomi. Let me read verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. As I mentioned, the harvest is over. Winnowing here at the end was the festive, joyful ending to the harvesting process. The harvested grain was first collected in a bundle. It was either manually taken to the threshing floor or put in a cart and taken there. And this floor would, would have been an open space of exposed bedrock where the grain was beaten either with a sledgehammer 
or trampled by animal hooves. The purpose was to remove the kernels from the husks, and then with a fork or a shovel, you'd pick up uh, the mixture and you'd toss it up into the wind, and the wind would blow away the lighter shaft while collecting the grain near to where the winnower was standing, and so they could separate the grain from the shaft. They'd burn the shaft for fuel. They'd use the grain to feed the animals and the people. And on this particular evening, it's a celebration. It's the end of the harvesting season, and they party. I mean, you can imagine that after years of famine, after years of people starving to death, now they celebrate the fact that they have an abundance of food. God had brought in the harvest. And Naomi knew that there was a celebration feast at the threshing floor. And so she concludes, our time is running out. Tonight is the night. It's the night for us to make a move. And she gives Ruth some instructions. She tells her to change her garment and to put on a cloak. Now, just to clear this up, I don't think Naomi is telling Ruth to go to Marks and Spencer and buy the latest fashion and get a fancy dress and put it on. No, Naomi and Ruth were poor. They didn't have anything. Just a few weeks earlier, they traveled almost 100 kilometers from Moab to Bethlehem. They didn't have much. I don't think she had a lot of nice clothes. Plus, it would have been dark when she would have gone to the threshing floor. No, I think Naomi is saying to Ruth to put on your normal cloak. It's possible, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that she's instructing Ruth to exchange her official cloak for mourning for her husband's death. A change of cloak would signify in these times that she was now an eligible woman to be married. But I don't think as some speculate that she spent all day putting on her makeup, getting her nails done, getting her hair cut just right, This just doesn't seem to be the case. So Naomi says, get on your normal cloak and go to the threshing floor. Go see Boaz. Now, we may not have thought much of this if Ruth had just gone down there to talk to Boaz, but this is quite an incognito mission, isn't it? This is like something out of the movie Mission Impossible. These men... They would sleep at the threshing floor during this winnowing season in order to guard the food so that robbers wouldn't come in and take it all. So they'd sleep there. And now Naomi says to Ruth, go down there and wait until Boaz is asleep. Wait till he's had some food and drink. Wait till the party is over. And then go to where he's sleeping, uncover his feet, and lay down. And he'll tell you what to do. Now, real quick disclaimer This chapter is not a how-to guide to dating in the 21st century. If that's what you're expecting today, it's just not what the text is. Nor is it a how-to guide even to dating in the book of Ruth. It's not simply about dating at all. This is a story, uh, a real history of two widows who are desperate because their life depends on this kind of provision. Society was different back then. Today, a single woman can provide for herself just fine by pursuing jobs and even a career. But back then, that simply wasn't the case. So Naomi tells Ruth, Ruth, you've got to get this right. Scope out the scene. Spy out Boaz. See where he goes to sleep. Now, this is good advice, right? It's already an awkward situation. Imagine if she gets the wrong guy's feet. 
I mean, awkward. You know, hey, oh, sorry, I don't know you. Sorry, I just uncovered your feet. Would have been strange. It would have been weird. And so Naomi tells Ruth, watch carefully. Make sure you get the right guy. Go to Boaz. If not, it could be a mistake of epic proportions. So Naomi gives the instruction. It's really bold direction. Sounds like a crazy plan, but she feels the urgency of the situation. The harvest is over. Their food will be over. Possible provision will be over. Naomi's asking again, how will we live? Well, this was an impossible, mission impossible type mission because Ruth couldn't just walk to him in the field in the middle of everyone there, get down on one knee and give him a diamond ring. It didn't work like that. He would have been surrounded by people. She's got to get him alone. And so Naomi jump starts this mission to provide a legal remedy for Ruth. And she goes for it. Naomi is displaying a kind of chesed here, a loyal love. She wants to make sure Ruth is taken care of. And so Naomi takes a bold risk in concocting this plan. God's sovereign goodness leads Naomi to godly risk for his glory. But how about Ruth? How will she Respond. Well, let's take a look at verses 6 through 9. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Well, Ruth follows Naomi's direction. She spies on Boaz. She's there at the party, maybe hidden somewhere, looking into the scene. She sees where Boaz lays down. You can almost hear Ruth's excited and nervous heartbeat in the intervening silence. She came secretly. She came quietly, proceeding cautiously to make sure she's got the right man. She uncovers the right man's feet. Now, this was risky, presenting herself alone to a man in the middle of the night as he is sleeping. Now, at some point in the night, he would roll over and perhaps trying to find his blanket. His feet are cold, and he would look up and say, oops, there is a woman in my bed. He's scratching his eyes, perhaps a little bit groggy, a little bit confused and startled. And he says, who are you? Now, it's a natural enough question to ask. I mean, you might say, well, well, why didn't he recognize Ruth? He had met her before. Well, he was asleep. It was dark. Ruth had on a different cloak. Ruth tells Boaz, "It's, it's your servant, Ruth. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. She was requesting his protection. She actually departs from Naomi's scripture and she speaks up. She's actually repeating Boaz's words earlier to her. Remember, she's saying to Boaz, remember your prayer for me? You might remember back in chapter 2, yourself, in verse 12, Boaz prayed that God would take Ruth under his proverbial wing. And here she's saying, Boaz, Why don't you be the answer to that prayer that you prayed? Why don't you answer God's prayer yourself and be God's wing 
for me. Love me, protect me, hold me close, look after me. Really what we see here is a picture of redemption, and it's the structure for Christian marriage that we see in Ephesians chapter 5, for husbands to love and to care and to protect their wives as Christ loves the church and cares for the church. This is what marriage is to be. A husband is to love and to protect his wife, to fight for his wife, to love his wife, to care for her. And this should be evident in every marriage and every home. A husband should be spreading his wings over his wife in protection. So fellow husbands, it must be worth us just taking a minute to consider how are we doing in our own marriages. For those of us men who are married, are you seeking to nourish, cherish, and protect your wife? So your wife should sense a shield of protection and shelter around her when she's around you. Your home should be a place of peace. One where you don't ever raise your voice or scold your wife and you never raise a hand against your wife. You never ever, ever as a husband hit your wife or hurt your wife. No, you don't do it. You do exactly the opposite. Your wife should sense and feel just an overwhelming overflow of protection and care and nurturing and provision when she's around you. Now, in love like Christ loved the church, husband, you do everything in your power through the Spirit's work, even if it means death, to protect and to care for your wife. So husbands, ask yourself today, is, is that what you are providing for your wife? Are you providing protection and care in all gentleness? If not, friend, I urge you, don't let the sun go down on your sin. Don't let the sun go down without you repenting before God and then going to your wife and asking for forgiveness. Friend, honor God. Do it today. Make things right. This is what your wife desperately needs. This is what God had ordained marriage to be. A husband loving his wife as Christ loves the church. This is what she needs. And this is what Ruth desperately needs. This is what Ruth desperately wants. Here's what she's saying here. She's saying, I want to marry you. Now, she's not proposing, but she is proposing that Boaz proposed to her. Now, Ruth could have been misunderstood here. Her reputation could have been ruined. And Boaz could have taken advantage of her. This wasn't normal. It was countercultural for a woman to propose to a man, a younger person, to propose to an elder, a field worker, to propose to a field owner, a Moabite, to propose to a Jew. And this was crazy on any number of accounts. It was a big risk. And yet, God's sovereign goodness leads Ruth to godly risk for his glory. And she's obedient. She trusted the one who gave her the instructions and she trusted God. She risked herself for the good of Naomi and for the glory of God and hoped that Boaz would be her kinsman redeemer. Now remember, a kinsman redeemer had an obligation to buy his relative back if they sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Under cer- certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer would also be obligated to marry his brother's widow in order to raise up the family of the dead man. This family would 
inherit this property. But notice here, there's no legal obligation for Boaz to do anything. Did you notice that as you read through this? But she's appealed to him as a family member. He may be a distant relative. He's in the family. He's in the clan. But she's appealing to him as one who at his own cost and own desire would act to rescue those whose future had been blighted. Even though he didn't have to. Boaz wasn't Elimelech's brother. And so no Levite marriage would apply here. He didn't have to marry Elimelech's widow, let alone Elimelech's son's widow. Otherwise, this kind of elaborate strategy wouldn't have been necessary, would it? Ruth could have just simply walked up with Naomi to Boaz in the marketplace and say, hey, you're my kinsman redeemer. You're the one who is supposed to redeem me, so go ahead and do what you're supposed to do. But that's not the case here. And we're left here through verse 9 in a real tense situation. We wonder what is going to happen here. How will Boaz respond? We'll look at verses 10 through 15. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now it is true that I am a a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Well, there we are at verse 10. The tension has been built up to epic proportions. What's Boaz going to do? Instead of taking offense at Ruth's forwardness during the night, Boaz blesses her. Praises her for her hesed, for her love, and he calls her my daughter. He reassures her by telling her not to fear. Promises her to do whatever she asks and pronounces her a noble woman. Wow. It's an absolutely extraordinary reaction. It's best attributed, honestly, to the hand of God controlling his heart and controlling his tongue as he awakes. I'm not sure I've ever had such a sweet response to anyone when I was wide awake, much less being awoke in the middle of the night. I mean, with touching, almost fatherly tenderness, he gave her the traditional formula of reassurance. He tells her, do not be afraid. God's sovereign goodness leads Boaz to godly risk for his glory. It's unbelievable, Boaz accepts her request, declares himself willing to take the risk that marriage to Ruth entailed. He was willing to pay the price, the social price, the financial price, the cost of time of welcoming this despised outsider into his family. Boaz even sees it as a kindness towards him. A younger man would have been a better prospect for children and significance, but Ruth comes to him and he's grateful. You know, it's interesting in the ordering of the Hebrew Bible, 
the book of Proverbs actually comes right before the book of Ruth. Specifically, the chapter of Proverbs 31 comes right before the book of Ruth. In that chapter, it describes a woman of character whose works praise her in the gates. Boaz uses similar language in verse 11. More literally, Boaz says, All the gates of my people know that you are a woman of worth. Her deeds have indeed been praised in the city gates. She's a vivid depiction of this woman that we read of in Proverbs chapter 31. And Boaz tells her he wants to redeem her, but there's a bit of a problem. There's a redeemer nearer than I, he says. And what he's saying is this is not my job. There's another guy, and it's his job, it's his responsibility. And again, the story just leaves us in suspense. Who will marry and redeem Ruth? And the chapter ends here in chapter 3 without an official engagement, and with Boaz telling Ruth that he's going to look into the matter. But not before Boaz sends her on her way. And he wants to do it quietly. He does this not because any immorality happened and he's trying to hide it, but because if anyone saw her, they would assume immorality. Hosea 9 tells us that prostitutes often frequented the threshing floor. These men were away from their families, and oftentimes immorality would happen with these prostitutes. And so Boaz says, why don't you stay here for a little bit? Stay here until the beginning of the morning. Let's make sure everyone's asleep. Make sure everyone's done partying. But before everyone gets up, let me send you on your way. And he gives Ruth a lot of food. You see six measures of barley would have been given. Now this, we don't know exactly how much the measure was or which measure was taken into account. But conservative estimates tell us perhaps at least 25 kilograms, maybe as much as 40. It might have been a down payment. Maybe Boaz's way of telling Ruth and Naomi, hey, I'm going to take care of this. I'm not going to rest until the situation is done, until it's finished. And he loads it on her back or in her cloak. And you can imagine this must wait. Ruth must have been a strong woman. And she carries it all the way back to Naomi. Some theologians see significance in the fact that it was six measures. You see throughout the Bible that the number seven is a number of completeness. Perhaps it's a reminder that God's faithfulness in the past and his faithfulness in the present is a model and a promise of his faithfulness in the future. Look at what God's done in the past. Look at what God's doing now. God's going to take care of this in the future. Look at what he's done. How will he not also give us all things? God will indeed provide all that you need. Well, while our chapter, our chapter doesn't end with resolution, it does end with hope. Look at verses 16 through 18. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi is sure that Boaz will do as he promised, that he'll make sure Ruth gets redeemed, that he won't rest until the matter is settled. And we'll see next week in chapter 4 that Boaz does what he says he'll do, and Ruth will be redeemed. God will provide. 
So we've seen Naomi, we've seen Ruth, and we've seen Boaz all take great risks. They've taken godly initiative because God has taken initiative toward them. And we see a living illustration of how God's sovereignty and human responsibility actually go together. We can believe that God is sovereign, that he upholds all things from the greatest to the least, that he governs whose barley field you walk into on a particular day, that he controls and directs and disposes and upholds all things. And yet, we as humans, we as Christians, we act. We take action. We take extraordinary and even risky acts of initiative. See, believing in the sovereignty of God doesn't mean you sit on your couch and just wait, hoping God drops some things in your lap. No, we don't let go and just let God work everything out. The sovereignty of God invites our activity as he works all things together for our good and for his glory. So what does this mean for us? Well, for those of us who are followers of Christ, what are you willing to take risks for? See, the fact is, we all take risks, don't we? We're willing to face all kinds of danger in life, both small and great, for the sake of having fun, receiving a promotion, or having a family. People are willing to put up with all kinds of discomforts and potential costs. We pursue hobbies, we make purchases, work long hours. We endure all kinds of pain for all kinds of reasons. But my question for you this morning is what are you willing to risk, though, for the sake of the gospel? For most of us, though, the answer is probably not very much. We're not very willing to risk our lives or our health or our reputations or our comfort or our friends or our family for the sake of the gospel. The most obvious proof in my life and perhaps in your life is our unwillingness to talk to others about God. It's, what's, it's what Francis Schaeffer called our guilty silence. You never mind putting our reputations at risk at midnight during the barley harvest, we wouldn't even risk being thought odd by our friends over coffee because we talked to them about Jesus. It's amazing how the people in our story all held strongly to the sovereignty of God and yet had a sense of energetic initiative in their lives. And they risked just about everything. See, belief in God's sovereignty as Christians should embolden us to share the gospel. Not because we have the power to lead anybody to faith, but precisely because God is sovereign over that person's soul. And in his wisdom and in his kindness, he has ordained our proclaiming of the gospel to be the way the gospel goes out to the world. God's sovereign goodness should also cause us to pray. That God has ordained prayer to be the means that he moves and acts. And so we pray. We pray boldly asking God to use us in some way. Belief in God's sovereignty also causes some of us to pursue marriage. Men, if you see a godly woman and both of you are walking with the Lord and the church community is supportive of it, you're free to initiate, to take a risk. You don't sit back and wait for a girl to uncover your feet. 
It's not our strategy today. Now, friend, men, you reject passivity. You define the relationship. You stop sending endless Blackberry messages and Facebook notes. And you step up. You talk to the woman, have an actual conversation, and define the relationship. See, at Redeemer, we would love to see God-honoring, Christ-exalting marriages between godly men and godly women. It would be our privilege, it would be our honor to see two people, a man and a woman, loving Jesus and then coming together to covenant with one another before the church to love each other till death do them part. And friend, if you're here and you're single and you want to be married, I want to urge you to work hard on being more and more like Christ. Take strategic initiative in growing in your holiness. Now, I don't know if marriage will come. It's not promised. But I do know that it's God's will for you to be more like Jesus. Your greatest joy is being united to Jesus, not in being married. Only Christ can solve your deepest problems. He's the one relationship that I can guarantee to you today that you were designed for. Work hard at this one. Get mentors who speak into your life. And if a romantic relationship comes, don't pursue it outside of community. Don't let it be a surprise to your friends, to the church. Get others around you to speak into it. But most of all, pursue Christ. Grow in holiness. Well, friend, I hope you see in this passage today in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz that God's sovereignty doesn't crush our initiative. No, it invigorates us. And so we act. Friend, grow in holiness. Share the gospel. Pray boldly. Pursue godly friendships. Pursue godly relationships. All by the grace of God. All by the power of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. We know only with Him moving with us is any of this possible. Outside of Him, we would fail at all of these things. And friend, if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus... You see displayed here in Ruth a beautiful picture of God's love. In the story, Boaz is a type of Christ, and Ruth is similar to the church. That Jesus loves us, not because he's obligated to, but because he's gracious, because he's kind, because he's affectionate and dependable. And it's all grace. It's not law. It's not of legality, not of obligation. You know, Ruth, like the church, which is the bride of Christ, comes to Boaz as we come to Jesus. And, and what does she ask in our chapter? She says to Boaz, will you redeem me? And then who does all the work? Well, we'll see in chapter 4 that it's all Boaz. He goes out and makes the redemption possible. Now, the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon would often call Jesus our glorious Boaz. That we come to him needing redemption and he redeems us at great cost. But much more than the money and the time and the reputation that Boaz gave up, Jesus gives us his own blood. Jesus gives us his own life. See, friend, you are able to rest because he didn't rest. Much like Boaz is not going to rest until the matter is done, Christ left his heavenly rest to take care of the business of redemption. See, the story is not so much a love story between two people, but it's a love story between God 
and his people. It's a love that would not let his people go in spite of centuries of idolatry and sin. It's a love that took Jesus to be born in a stable with no protection, no rest, no godly Boaz to protect him. It's a love that caused Jesus to abandon eternal glory and become the servant. Someone of no reputation, despised and rejected by men. It's the same love that took him to the cross to be offered up for the sins of his people. And it's a love that proved to be true when on the third day he rose from the dead. And you say, why would he do that? He's not obligated. He didn't owe us anything. Exactly. It's grace. It's love. It's mercy. Jesus treats us like Boaz treats Ruth and even better. Oh friend, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, I urge you to follow him today. To become a follower of Jesus, you confess your sin to him. You ask him to redeem you. Friend, there's nothing else you could do. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. All of us deserve death and judgment. That our good works are filthy rags. They make no difference. We've sinned against the holy God and there's nothing that can reconcile us unless God does something for us. Oh friend, we are dead apart from Christ and yet he can be a kinsman redeemer for you today. If you repent of your sin and believe in Christ to save you, he will forgive you. He will give you everlasting life. He will take you out of the death and judgment that you're currently in. He will redeem you and give you relationship with him. Oh, friend, Jesus provides something more than financial security, more than barley, more than babies, more than marriage, more than a family line. He provides eternal life and a relationship with God. Oh, friend, do you follow Christ? If you don't, perhaps the greatest act of initiative you need to take today is to place your faith in him. It's to take that bold step, even the seemingly risky step, to forego the things of the world, to trust in Christ to save you. Friend, disfigured by sin, your heart is all you have to give to him. Give it to him and let him cover you with wings and refuge. Your hope can be built on something that will last, on Christ and his righteousness. Strive to enter that rest today because he won't rest until he finishes the work that he began. Let God's sovereign goodness lead you to take godly risk for his glory. Come to him today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace you've shown us in Christ Jesus. Though we had nothing to bring to you, you have hid our lives in you and you have protected us. Help us to risk in such a way that shows our greatest concern is for the glory of Christ. Help us to risk in a way that shows the world that Christ is more valuable to us than anything this world can offer. Help us to risk in a way that shows our ultimate allegiance is to you. Oh, Father, we praise you. We love you. 
We thank you for your great grace. We pray this in the name of the one who has saved us, Jesus Christ. Amen.